Alright, welcome back everybody to Critical Care Scenarios. Uh, we're excited to bring you our third episode. Hopefully you've caught the last two where Brian and I have done some, some cruel and unusual things to each other in the name of critical care. Um, <laughs> but I think, we're, I think we're getting into it. We're getting, getting warmed up. We're, we're uh, figuring out how to, how to make this all happen. Um, but it is time for a little revenge on my part. So Brian, are you, are you, are you prepared in mind and body? I don't know. I am. I guess I am. I feel like I was pretty hard on you last time, and I'm afraid that you're going to get me back. Well, that's the the circle of life here. All right. So, Brian, um, you're in the ICU, and they give you a call because they have a a 65-year-old female in the ED there. Um, She's a history of diabetes, not real well-controlled. A1C is about 10. uh, Hypertension, migraines. She has uh, some obesity. Her BMI is about 34. Uh, She weighs like maybe 210. Um, But she's had about five days of cough and shortness of breath. Uh, Kind of just developed insidiously several days ago. She doesn't know why, but today it was really worse. She had more distress. So she called an ambulance and they brought her here for evaluation. So the the ER attending gives you a call and says, "Um, you know, we shot an x-ray and she has these kind of diffuse, fluffy bilateral infiltrates in her chest. Um, she, uh, I, I kind of feel like this may be ARDS or a pneumonia, like a multifocal pneumonia, um, but certainly headed in the you know ARDS direction and not doing too poorly yet, but uh, I think she's going to get worse. So I think she needs the ICU. So you go down and see her and you find her uh, on 50% oxygen by a Venturi mask, uh, satting about 94%. Um, and on exam, she, she doesn't look like she's working to breathe too much, but she looks a little scared. Um, so you bring her up to the ICU and uh, the nurses get her settled and just give me some idea. Um, what are you, what are you thinking about just from the get go here? Things that you're projecting, things that you're worried about, things you want to get rolling right away. Okay. So she's on 50% mildly labored, you said breathing. Yeah, not so much working, but she she doesn't look well, certainly, and she looks a little um, frightened. Okay, so I, I think I would like to get an ABG. So you do get an ABG, and it shows a pH of 7.4, uh, CO2 of 40, and a PaO2 of 60. And that's on 100%. They had her on 50, but because she was dipping, when they came up to the unit, they actually did put her on a non-rebreather. So that is on 100 okay. now. Okay, all right. So I'm um, concerned about her oxygenation. That's not obviously not very good oxygenation for uh, someone who's on 100%. I think I would be inclined to try something like BiPAP or high flow first uh, to see if we can improve her oxygenation and maybe give her some positive pressure to help with her work of breathing. Which do you think you would favor? I think let's try high flow first if she'll tolerate that. My experience is that patients tend to tolerate and like high flow a little better than BiPAP. Um, It doesn't always work. Uh, Folks don't always get the benefit of the pressure, uh, particularly if they're mouth breathers. But we can try it first and see how it goes. Yeah, I I think I'm with you. For most of these people who just seem like they need oxygen, high flow is kind of a nice way to do it. I don't really like leaving people on non-rebreathers for who knows how long because it's just kind of Mm -hmm. a barbaric thing. And I I feel like putting them on BiPAP, you start to think, how long are they going to be on this? Because if you're talking about most hypoxic disease like pneumonia and ARDS and things, unless it's like a simple heart failure, I mean, there's going to be like days usually. Are they going to sit with right. this mask on the whole time? I feel like that's right. 
kind of bad for him. Right. All right. So you throw her on high flow, um, and she seems like she responds reasonably well at first. She, oxygenation improves some. But uh, an hour or two later, uh, respiratory therapy and the nurses come back, and they say, listen, we've got her maxed out on this, whatever kind of your maximum flow on your machine is, and she's on 100%, and she's um, sitting down now in the 80s again. And she's looking mm. a little bit more labored, a little more work of breathing. Have we tried some basic stuff like um, breathing treatments, PMPD, and all that stuff? We could. Um, okay. So I'll tell you that she uh, she has no wheezing you could appreciate on okay. exam. No history of any kind of bronchoconstrictive disease. Okay. She's not really coughing up any sputum for you. She, you can hear some junk in her lungs, but she's not really mobilizing it for the most part. And uh, on x-ray, she seems to have no real large airway occlusion. She doesn't have a whole lobe or a whole lung that seems like it's atelectatic. It's sort of all gotcha. smaller airways. So what okay. would your kind of approach be, you think? And does she look like she has volume overload? On exam, she looks, for the most part, euvolemic. Okay. I think, honestly, I think I would lean towards intubating her. Um, if she's on 100% and not satting very well and sort of struggling to breathe, I don't think BiPAP is going to do a whole lot for her. Um, so I think I would probably talk about intubating her. Yeah, I th- that's usually how I would go too. Just for the, you know, the projected course here is not going to mm-hmm. be one that gets better in a couple hours. <laughs> which, right. I mean, we started to push the, these you know, non-invasive ventilation runs a little longer, but I, I, you know, bad stuff happens when people are sitting there for four days with a mask on. Right. They aspirate or they mysteriously code at 2 a.m. And so, all right. So you get her innervated, which goes smoothly. Um, let's think about kind of our vent settings. Um, we'll gloss over whether your institution tends to be a volume or pressure control kind of place, but I'll presume you're going to put her on some sort of assist control. What sort of tidal volumes do you like? So I would put her on probably, I would start at six per kilo of ideal body weight. Uh, we haven't discussed how tall she is, but. So that'll be about 340 for her. Okay. Um, I am a PRVC guy. Ah, I like okay. that. I like that mode quite a bit. Um, that's my kind of default. Um, so I would start with PRVC with the tidal volume of whatever you said, get 350. Um I would start her off on probably five of PEEP and 100% and then try to back down on the FiO2 and go up on the PEEP if needed. Okay. Um, I think at some point, we're, I think that's where we're headed, is to more of like an ARDSnet type of protocol, like a high PEEP mm-hmm. um, kind of thing. Now, let me ask you, if we're saying perhaps she has ARDS or something in that neighborhood, if she didn't, if she were some other patient who broke her ankle or has appendicitis or something, do you sure. still tend to use these lower tidal volumes or you don't really worry about it? Uh, I don't worry about it quite so much. So I would, on a generic person where I have no suspicion of acute lung injury, uh, I would probably go around eight to 10 per kilo. Um, but honestly, I was telling uh, one of our students the other day, I feel like in critical care, you when you read the books, you learn a lot about different formulas and calculations and stuff. And then when you do it for a while, you sort of start to get this gestalt for stuff. And you feel like um, numbers that I sort of pull out of the air work just fine. Um, in fact, a lot of times our respiratory therapists will say to me after we intubate, are you okay with the settings? I just put them on and I'll say, sure. 
and they say you didn't even you didn't even look at them. I said, well, because you're smart, you put them on something that's not ridiculous, right? We'll get a gas in thirty minutes and kind of go from there. Um, so yeah, if it's not somebody I suspect acute lung injury on, I sort of will just pick a number that uh, I feel like is, is reasonable. Right. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I think for those sort of patients, I I I tend to try to have them on something that I consider lung protective, but I perhaps don't worry as much. If they seem like they hate right. it and they want more volume or something, I'll often liberalize it. Right? Um, so you're saying you have CC, six cc's per kilo. I presume you're going to try to keep um, uh, their plateau pressure under 30 or so, or on period yes. C, just the peak airway pressure. Yep. Um, is there anything else you're looking at? Are you, are you into driving pressures or mechanical power or compliance or anything else? Uh, I would look at the compliance, um, but typically I'm going to go based on what what am I getting back um, sort of with my generic PRBC stuff. So if I'm getting a lot of peak airway pressures up in the 30s and 40s uh, and I have to start playing with things, then I'm going to start looking at compliance and then I'm going to start looking at plateau pressure and start tweaking things. All right. But I think until I start looking at changing to a pressure control mode, um, I think I'm just going to probably go with the sort of generic numbers that are, show up on the first screen of the ventilator. Sure. So now just reminding everyone, of course, that PRVC is essentially a pressure control mode with just sort of a right. volume target. And of course, in pressure control, unless your eye time is quite short, your peak pressure should essentially equal your plateau pressure. So you're watching those peak pressures in the same Correct. way that someone on volume control would watch their plateaus. Correct. As a surrogate for compliance. Okay, great. So you've got on PRVC, you start on PIP5. Um, over the next couple hours, you find that you're dialing up your PEEP and your FiO2. Um, okay. You get to a point where you're on 100% FiO2. Um, and they've been, I guess, dialing up the peak alongside it if you're using sort of a, an ARDS uh, kind of PEEP FiO2 table. How high are you going to go on your PEEP? Mm, that's a good question. So I think if I start to get to, say, 14, 16, somewhere in there, uh, without seeing a lot of improvement, I start to get nervous and think about start thinking about other things to do. Yeah, I think the highest I've ever gone was 25, but I usually would not go above 20. Yeah, so I would go to 20, 22, somewhere in there uh, to try and recruit, but I wouldn't want to keep it there. Do you have any particular fancy way of figuring out peep or you just kind of go up alongside your FIO2? Um, so I think I initially would go up alongside the FIO2 and then I, I like the ARDSnet table uh, that you mentioned uh, that shows sort of the peep and FIO2 um, in relation to one another. And so I'll try to match that. So if I'm requiring 100% FIO2, for example, and I don't have the table in front of me, but uh, if I'm at 100% FIO2 and my PEEP is somewhere around 8 or 10, I'm going to go up to probably 14, 16, 18 of PEEP somewhere in there and then start dialing down the FIO2 and PEEP in combination with each other stepwise until I get to a good spot. Okay. And I'm and I'm looking for SATs in the high 80s, 88 okay. or so. Now, will you ever attempt a recruitment maneuver in addition to your PEEP? Sure. What do your recruitment maneuvers look like? I will do like you, you know we talked about the you know go up high high peep um, with inspiratory hold type stuff. Beyond that, that's that's really as much as I'll I'll do uh, typically. Um, if if I'm having to do much more than that, 
I don't know. I think it's it's time to start looking at some other options. So you'll you'll recruit by just kind of going to hire normal peeps and then try sure. to dial down. You won't go to yeah. like super therapeutic levels for a minute or two that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, sure. No, I have done that too. Um, you know, and and uh, like you said, just for a minute or two, um, up in the twenties and even thirties. Um, but typically. Um, it, it, you know, I'll do that once or twice and then I sort of started to get nervous. Okay. So let's suppose we get up to whatever the, the maximum peep you're going to tolerate today is. Let's say you get as far as maybe 20. Okay. Um, and you're on a hundred percent of FiO2, um, and you're kind of barely borderline maintaining a SAT. Um, first of all, are there any other medications that you would have on board at this point? Um, are you a steroid user? Uh, so yeah, I would probably consider a dose of steroids, uh, at that point, if, if we're not making headway with just the vent. Um, would you, we mentioned briefly before kind of inhaled bronchodilators. Is that something you would routinely have in this case? Um, yeah, I think that's something to consider. Um, and I think that especially early on, uh, if you're not making headway, I think that's a good drug to add. Um, we would start off with with uh, just inhaled bronchodilators um, steroids and um, and then move on to sort of the bigger guns um, if, if we weren't making progress yeah I, f- I think there's a lot of individual variation here I, I I tend to myself not do a lot of inhaled bronchodilators unless I think that there's some actual kind of reactive airway disease but there's mm-hmm. a lot of people who will you give it to almost anyone with a you know pulmonary process um, just sure. to think on the theory that it maybe helps pulmonary toileting and things like that. And I don't know. I don't know if there's a right answer. Certainly, I think it's not harmful. Yeah, and I think that's why I would sort of lean, lean towards it because it may or may not be helpful, but I don't, like you said, certainly I don't think it's harmful. And I think before we start talking about really um, kind of big gun therapies where there is much more potential for harm or cost um, and, and things like that, uh, I think we should start just trying things that are cheap and easy. Um, would you have an arterial line in this patient? Yeah. Yeah. I would. And do you think there's any role for bronchoscopy? Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that would sort of depend. Um, if I don't see anything on the x-ray that makes me think that there's a, a block blockage, like a mucus plug or something, um, honestly, I, I would go back and forth because I think part of the problem you get when you bronch these people is by necessity, you lose some ground, right? You lose some recruitment um, because they are not going to have the same peep that they had and you're putting a scope down there and, and you're potentially losing ground. And so I want to make sure that there's a little, that there's a good indication for it uh, and that there's a good benefit for it. If we're sort of in this middle area where um, we're oxygenating and ventilating okay and we're not on a ton of support, um, and we think, well, let's bronch just to see, uh, then I'm okay with it. Cause I think at that point it falls into the probably won't hurt anything, uh, even if it's not super helpful realm. Uh, but when we're getting up to this, you know, high, high peep, high FIO2 situations, uh, if I don't have a real good indication for, I think this is going to help, then I'm much more leery to put a scope down. Yeah, at some point, I'm not sure it's even safe anymore. I, right. I I think I would only tend to do it if I really think there's a large airway mucus plug, um, right? Or if there's some some 
lack of clarity about the diagnosis that where it would be helpful in some right. BALs or specimens might shed more light on it. But yeah. Okay. So we've, let's say we've kind of maxed out our conventional, you know, ventilatory approach here. Um, you're still borderline or not able to oxygenate. What, what is your next move here? Mm. So one of the things that we would consider uh, is inhaled aproprostanol. Ah. Um, and I know that's somewhat controversial uh, because people will say, you know, if there's not an indication for it based on pulmonary hypertension or stuff like that. But uh, there is some literature to suggest that in the inhaled um, versions will give you some uh, pulmonary vasodilation that will help uh, improve your flow and therefore your gas exchange. Right, improve VQ mashing and stuff. So yeah. you guys would tend to do epoprostenol versus like nitric oxide. Yeah. So we used to do um, we used to do both, um, and we could kind of go back and forth. Particularly when I worked in CT surgery, and we would do it on lung transplant patients, uh, and then we just sort of made the decision institutionally to not use nitric oxide as much. Um, I can't remember the last time we I even saw a nitric oxide set up in the adult ICU. Now, I think they do still use it frequently in the peds ICU, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, I think a lot of places it is institutional. I believe the nitric is more expensive. It is more expensive. And I think that was, you know, not to say that we that the decision was driven by cost, but I think it was a situation of cost-benefit. You know, is it worth the extra do you get more enough extra benefit from it for to justify the extra cost and i think our institution sort of decided that no you probably don't right okay now um are you an aprv guy uh, so I have used APRV before. I do like it. Um, I don't have a ton of experience with it, so I always have to get out some cheat sheets uh, when I do it. Uh, but I think in a case like this, if I'm on, if I'm on epiprostanol and we're doing all the other things, then I think I would consider doing APRV. Like I said, I would have to get out uh, some notes to sort of remind myself of the salient details. But yeah. Yeah, I think that's another one that's very uh, regional. I mean, I trained in mm-hmm. Maryland, and there's a lot of APRV fans out there. Um, I I think before it was really uh, a sort of evidence-free zone. We just started to get a little more, little more evidence for it, which we can talk about it. But I, I think I have started to go to it a little bit earlier, so to the point where um, these patients where I have on a conventional mode and I've gotten up to peeps of like 20 or over, that's not real common anymore. I think before then I would try APRV on the theory that that's just sort of the ultimate peep um, mm-hmm. as long as you think it's safe which I, I think for the most part we have shown um I, I mean clearly people oxygenate on it i mean it does recruit them whether or not they do better is a different question but um okay so what about proning when does that start to enter your thought process so i uh, will give you the textbook answer and then the actual answer that I would do in practice. The textbook answer is I think proning early is good. I think there's lots of good evidence for it. Now, do we prone patients? I very, very rarely. Um, Now, I think if you go to the medicine ICU in our institution, they prone people a lot more readily than we do in the surgical ICU um, or in the neuro ICU. Um, But we just just tend not to do that for whatever reason. I, I really think it is a matter of comfort. I mean, the more you mm-hmm. do, the more you're willing to do. And 
the places that don't do it very much that you just you kind of look for reasons not to yeah uh, the nurses are not real thrilled by the idea um just the kind of practical implications seem like they're a little daunting and the cases come up infrequently enough unless you're in a very busy center that sees a lot of this that uh, you can i think kind of get around it a lot of the time yeah, and I think part of that may just be a little bit of our patient population as well. So in the surgical ICU, and particularly the cardiothoracic surgery ICU, um, proning becomes much more difficult because you have people that have you know, sternotomies and chest tubes and all sorts of abdominal incisions and things like that, whereas in the medicine ICU, it's a little easier. You're dealing with a patient who's a normal person you know, yeah. without a bunch of tubes and drains and, and stuff like that. So I think that's one reason why we may not do it as much. And therefore, since we don't do it as much, we're not as comfortable with it. So therefore, we don't do it as much. And yeah, it sort it of becomes itself. this feedback loop, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you work in a facility that does ECMO. We do. Okay. Most of the places I've worked do not. And that kind of changes that algorithm a little bit. Because if you're thinking about putting a patient on ECMO, you need to transfer them out when they're in a Mm -hmm. stable enough state for it. When would you start thinking about putting someone like this on ECMO? So I think the reason, I think one of the reasons we don't prone as much is, is because we do ECMO so much. Um, You know, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. I think the last, last numbers I heard, we were doing over a hundred cases a year of it. So that's not, you know, I mean, that's something we're, we're very comfortable with. Um, And so I think, that's one of the reasons we don't prone is because we can just put somebody on ECMO and uh, yeah, it's proning is certainly cheaper and easier, I guess, uh, uh, depending on how you look at it. But so I think if I've got a patient and we've done, we've done the ARDSnet ventilator, we've done the flow land. Uh, I think the next thing I would do is talk about paralyzing them uh, and maybe even that before flow land um, to see if that helps. Uh, but if that doesn't help, then I'm starting to talk about ECMO. Okay. So it's it's kind of always on your mind as the patient is sick enough. Yeah. Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily wait until the last possible moment. No, I think the, direction the sooner the better. Uh, if, if, it's, if you're pretty sure that you're headed that way, I think the sooner the better. I think... One, I think ECMO is sort of like a lot of different indicate and a lot of different technologies that we use in the ICU where we say, oh, I don't know that it really helps that much. But then you look at it and you find that we're really waiting until it's a last ditch effort to do. And I think we've seen that the earlier you utilize it, the better your outcomes tend to be. And so maybe it's not that it's not a helpful thing. Maybe it's that we just wait too late. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, in this particular case, I, I don't think there's any right answer. I think we just have to mm. kind of look at the, the approaches that can be taken. So we'll just say that your patient does great. Uh, okay. uh, I, I think the, you know, the, the points worth touching on are um, kind of just what we have as far as the data for this, this panoply of tools. You know, in some cases is stronger evidence, some cases very little. Um, so let's just look at kind of the most recent uh, data on most of these things. The one thing I think we have to remember first is that a lot of us feel like the approach to these patients is to prevent hypoxemia. And if we can get them oxygenating better, then they're doing better. But a lot of these patients with ARDS are not dying of hypoxia. They're dying perhaps with hypoxia, um, but that's often not what you know makes them in the end unmanageable. They die of organ failure, you know, the same as most mm-hmm. of our patients do. Um, certainly some of them do have truly refractory hypoxemia, but uh, the reason I think that's important is because 
just because you have a therapy that improves oxygenation, that doesn't actually mean that you're improving the patient's outcome. So that kind of immediate feedback we get is not always reliable. And that's why, it, you know, you need things like studies, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other tricky part is that a lot of these studies and you know, the algorithms you'll see for these patients and guidelines, um, they'll use the PF ratio as a guideline of when to, you know, introduce certain therapies, um, which I don't know about your experience, but I've found to be of kind of limited utility because the PF ratio is such a, a, a dynamic thing. I mean, at what point do you take the patient's PF ratio? Is it when they first get intubated? Is it when you've kind of quote unquote optimize their vent settings? Is it when you've turned up their PEEP to eight or to 10 or to 15? Is it when you've added that flow land or whatever else you're going to add? I mean, it's changing over time. It's almost more like that time course that tells the story a little bit better, but that's not really captured in any algorithm that I've seen. Right. So I look at the PF ratio, like you said, dynamically. Um, and I would sort of look at it, um, even not minute to minute, but intervention to intervention. So for example, if I get a blood gas on a patient and look at their PAO2, um, I sort of do a brief PF calculation in my head every time with every blood gas, even on non-ARDS patients, just to sort of see, you know, if, you know, your PAO2 comes back and it's 70, well, that's, Great, but that doesn't really tell me much until I look at how much oxygen you're on. Uh, and so I think you're right. I think it's a dynamic thing, and there's not a one point where you say this is this is what the PF ratio is. For my purposes with an ARDS patient, I document in the note every day kind of what the PF ratio is at some generic snap point. So in, right. in time that in that that day, you know, you typically right. with morning labs or whatever. Yeah. All right. So um, if we just kind of go through. The, this escalating process here, I think pretty much everyone would agree that you should start with something that resembles the ARDSnet, you know, lung protective approach to ventilating, which is, mm-hmm. you know, more restrictive volumes and pressures and things like that. Probably not worth spending too much time on here because I think it's pretty widely accepted. Yeah. Um, and then from there, you can start adding in more of these um, add-ons. Um, when it comes to neuromuscular blockade or paralysis, um, the most recent thing we had was the PEDAL trial from this year. Um, you know, it was an RCT of kind of moderate to severe ARDS. Um, they gave people 48 hours of paralysis with cisatricurium versus just kind of routine care. Big one. It was over 1,000 patients, and they found no difference in 90-day mortality. Um, now, you can argue about some of the stats, um, but they thought maybe it was because the intervention group that got paralyzed ended up being less active and actually had some more complications like cardiovascular mm. events in the hospital. Um, so, and, you know... If you're having more complications with a therapy that's not giving you much, then you would expect to see worse outcomes. For me, um, I will paralyze when I feel like the patient's respiratory effort is causing problems. So if they're having a lot of kind of vent dysynchrony, um, you know, start with deep sedation, which cures a lot of your problems. But there are patients who are a RAS of negative five, and they're still double stacking breaths, and you really feel like they're you know, they're exhaling to where they're losing their peep and they're inhaling to where they're getting unsafe tidal volumes. And I think those are the patients worth paralyzing. Um, for me, I tend to not do it on everyone, but it's something to try on that select group. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think the same thing. I don't simply, it would, paralyzing would not necessarily be on my list of things to do unless there was, like you said, vent dyssynchrony uh, and issues like that. And what I've done in the past too is just instead of just starting on cisatricurium, just give a large dose of rocuronium uh, IV push 
and sort of as a testo, see what happens if the patient improves and things settle down and not just oxygenation, but like you said, vent pressures and stacking and, uh, and everything else like that, then, uh, that kind of gives me more evidence in my mind that maybe 24 to 48 hours of cystatricurium, um, could be beneficial. Uh, but like you said, a lot of times we're, we're going on what we have in the moment, right? I gave some paralytics and their oxygenation improved, uh, but then the research shows that outcomes over the long term don't necessarily improve. Yeah, I think there's definitely a role for kind of more bolus dosing of it. I mean, the, in the pedal trial, it was two days, which is kind of a long time to paralyze someone. I think a lot of time you may be able to do it for much shorter. Um, so, uh, you know, you could always say that the patient in front of you is different from the study. Right. Second thing might be um, steroids. You know, do you give these ARDS patients corticosteroids? The most recent guidelines I've seen are from the SCCM and the ESICM, the European group, um, just I think last year, um, and they they recommend it. Um, they they say if you give steroids within 14 days, then that's reasonable. So that for them, that's on the early side. Uh, what I kind of take that to mean is um, I don't worry about it too much on this first kind of day or night of admission. Um, if they're kind of settling out and they still seem to have persistent disease, which is pretty severe, then I, I feel like maybe you throw it at them. Although some of those patients are going to be on steroids anyway for, mm-hmm. um, you know, adrenal insufficiency or something else. Um, but I, I, it's definitely not something that I use perhaps as often as the guidelines would seem to suggest. Similar to, you know, guidelines for steroids for community acquired pneumonia, that's also recommended. And I feel like I don't do much of that either. Um, I, I think there's just a lot of practice variation there. Yeah, I would agree. Briefly to mention driving pressures, which I think have gotten sort of very popular the last few years. This is the whole idea that a better marker for lung injuriousness of a breath than the tidal volumes or the pressures might be the driving pressure, which is just the the delta P, the difference between your plateau pressure and the PEEP, how much air is actually going into your lung with each breath. This is from a study that Amato did in 2015. They just reanalyzed some of the ARSNET data, and they thought that the driving pressure was actually the most... Uh, predictive variable um, that independently predicted mortality, um, even versus, you know, uh, tidal volumes or plateau pressures. Um, So I think everyone kind of took that and ran with it. A lot of people are routinely measuring driving pressures now and trying to optimize them. Um, For me, I think that's a a little premature. There's not really been much more evidence on this. There was one more meta-analysis that sort of agreed with that, but no one's done an RCT on this. so I think it's an interesting concept, but I don't myself go around looking at driving pressures very much. And then, let's see, recruitment. Um, I, I used to do recruitment maneuvers, not infrequently, um, and everyone has a different one, it's very kind of an art more than a science. But then just you know, a couple of years ago, 2017, there was the, the art trial, um, uh, Cavalcanti was the first author, where they you know, randomized people to have a, a recruitment-based strategy. Um, versus more kind of usual care with low, you know, lung protective uh, ventilation. And they thought the recruitment group actually had more six-month mortality, um, same kind of ICU and hospital mortality, but long-term more, uh, and more pneumothoraxes and some more other complications. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, for me, that's kind of pushed me away from it a little bit. Um, some people said that in the trial, the their recruitment was really kind of aggressive and more than most people would do. But honestly, it was a similar approach to what I've heard from a lot of other people. It's They had kind of an escalating PEEP ladder. It'd give you a driving pressure of 15 and pressure control and dial your PEEP up to 35, meaning your peaks were 50-ish, and then come back down again. So, I mean, it was aggressive, but it, to me, not outlandish. Um, and... Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think recruitment is always a, a factor of pressure as well as time. And unless you have someone who's like 
acutely decompensated, like someone tripped over their event and broke the circuit and they dropped their sat or some other event. Um, most of the time, I feel like you can wait for them to recruit with a reasonable peep, you know, over a matter of minutes to hours. And then coming to APRV, um, again, this was something that was, there was not a lot of data for, although there was a lot of advocates for it, um, until uh, this study by Zhu a few years ago, um, Z-H-O-U, which was a, a pretty small RCT, a hundred some people. Um, but, you know, they compared APRV versus a more conventional strategy, and they actually saw some good benefit. There were far fewer days on the ventilator. It was 19 versus 2. Uh, shorter ICU stays um, and less mortality. And the same things you would expect, better oxygenation, compliance, and less sedation, and things like that. So that's kind of pushed me more towards, towards using it. And it's kind of reinforced what I think you see clinically, which is anecdotally a good response. People do oxygenate better. I'm not a... Um, sort of APRV zealot, which I think some, some people are. Some people feel like every patient should be on APRV and they leave them on it and wean them on it and extubate them on it. Um, even if you are sort of a fan of it that way, I think you need to be working with other people who are also fans because they need to know how to manage it. Um, but I'll certainly go to it if I think patient just really needs recruitment. And again, anecdotally, I feel like it tends to work. <laughs> and then we have proning, which... You know, it's almost a pattern with a lot of these. There's a lot of negative or equivocal studies, and then maybe they finally came up with one that seemed to show benefit. For proning, it was the, the Proceva study in 2015, which you know showed a mortality benefit with early proning, 16 versus maybe 32%. Um, most of those patients were proned at about 24 hours from uh, intubation. So uh, I, I tend to allow people a period of sort of stabilization with usual therapies. I don't feel like they need to be prone, you know, four hours after they're admitted. And realistically, they're usually not. I mean, you do a lot of other things and you kind of drag your feet a little bit until you start thinking about it, even if you're thinking about it fairly early. Um, but I, I, you don't want to wait days and days because I think the benefit's not there either. So, you know, if you admit them in the afternoon, maybe next morning would be a good time. Um, and it, that also makes the the numbers line up pretty well because, a lot of these protocols, you may prone them for 16 hours, perhaps, and then flip them back for eight hours. And if you're on a 24-hour cycle, it's nice to have those flips happen at a time of good staffing. <laughs> so mm -hmm. if you start in the morning, you can flip them again at night and then leave them overnight and not be trying to turn them over at 4 a.m. or something like that. Um, so, you know, it's it's hard. It's definitely one of those things where we look at the oxygenation, but maybe that's not where the benefit is. Maybe it's just more lung protective. And so the benefit is more something seen long-term and not very evident. And I mean, some places would put people on ECMO and still prone them because they think it's safest for the lungs. In your experience with proning, uh, do you tend to do just the sort of, uh, I guess what we'd call the, the budget old-fashioned way where you literally just flip a patient over in the bed? Or do you use those fancy beds that turn the patients uh, automatically? I've mostly done it the old-fashioned way, um, okay. but I think that is purely up to kind of the nursing and your ICU's culture. Um, people have learned it a certain way. If they have the bed mm -hmm. and they want to use it, then great. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I wouldn't let someone say, "Hey, we don't we don't have the bed. We can't do it." I mean, you could turn people over. They do it all the time in right. the OR. It's just you know, you flip right. them. <laughs> right. Uh, and then the last thing here is, is ECMO. And that's really the, the elephant in the room because there's more and more ECMO being done now. And it, I mean, there's no arguing that it helps your oxygenation. It, there's just, we don't really have much data yet on whether it helps the patients. The most recent study was this, the EOLIA study in 2018. No statistically significant benefit in mortality there. 
um, a lot of questions about the the methodology. There was a lot of crossover between groups, um, and it's just hard to get large studies of this because it's not very common. So mm-hmm. who knows? I mean, I think people have really started to believe in this, and again, it clearly oxygenates people. So if someone is dying of hypoxia and you've done everything else, then sure, why not? It is challenging in um, smaller centers that are not doing it because you need to pick when to transfer that patient for ECMO. It's more helpful if you have a center um, that will come and do it in a mobile fashion and put them on the pump at your facility and then transport them like that. Otherwise, it's easy to get a patient who becomes, quote unquote, too sick to transfer for ECMO. Uh, If you're somewhere where they're doing a lot of it, I can certainly see why you end up doing a lot of it. (laughs) But of course, it has its own complications, right? So I think we just really don't know yet which are the right patients for this. Yeah, our center will, um, we have a mobile service that will go cannulate at an outside hospital and bring the patient back to us. Um, But, you know, even within our center, there's issues because all of our ECMO patients are cohorted in the CTICU. So if I put a patient on ECMO in the neuro ICU, that patient still has to be transferred up to the eighth floor um, to go to that unit. And so um, we have issues of... moving the patient within the hospital. Um, we have a pretty good protocol for that. Um, we have a pretty experienced team um, that's that's used to doing that and moving those patients around the hospital. Uh, and the CTIC will prioritize that patient for a bed. So if if they can move anyone out to somewhere else, they'll make a bed for us. But we uh, we also have seen the the problem of accepting patients from outside for ECMO for non-cardiogenic reasons, so not a CT surgery patient, but say uh, an ARDS pneumonia patient who comes to be put on VV ECMO. Uh, Once the patient gets weaned off the ECMO, they really have no need to be in the cardiothoracic ICU anymore, but there may not be a MICU bed available um, because our MICU tends to run at, you know, anywhere from two to 300% capacity, I feel like. Um, And so now you have a patient who is you know, septic with pneumonia and uh, all sorts of quote, dirty conditions in a uh, environment where people are having heart surgery and that presents its own complications. So, right. Yeah. And I think that's common. A lot of places will really try to cohort their ECMO patients. I think it's becoming a little more liberalized in some places. There's having, you know, MICUs and neuro ICUs perhaps that are doing at least maybe some VV ECMO and things like that. But it's definitely, Mm -hmm. at least historically, I think been, in the the domain of the the cardiac surgeons in a lot of places. Yeah, I think we used to, years ago, um, wherever a patient was in the hospital and they got put on ECMO, they stayed there. And I think they found that once they started cohorting them all together, the nurses in the CTICU are very experienced and comfortable with ECMO. Um, Patients started having better outcomes. Uh, And I think a lot of that comes from the complications of ECMO because, you know, the management of ECMO is really not that complicated. Um, but the management of the complications can be slash, uh, just a, a comfort level, right? Getting ECMO patients up and moving them around and doing PT with them is something that most people are not very comfortable with unless you do it a lot. Right. ECMO is perhaps not so complicated, but ECMO patients are complicated. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't know if we have a lot of great answers for all this, but maybe we've come up with some uh, sort of approaches. Um, any final thoughts on ARDS? No, I think it's. Uh, I think you're right. I think it's something that is ubiquitous, but yet um, the treatment is not right. We don't still have a good. This is how you do it. 
Um, and so I think a lot of what we do is as much voodoo as anything else. Uh, and it's institution specific, but yeah. And I, I actually, I feel like these patients are not as common as they used to be, you know, sort of true, pure, severe ARDS patient. I mean, people with a little ARDS with some other process, sure. Um, but these kind of patients where you're going through everything and you end up, you know, putting them on ECMO or something for that reason, outside Mm -hmm. of, um, you know, when there's a bad flu epidemic or something like that. Um, yeah. It's not as common as you'd think reading the journals. <laughs> yeah, and I would think I would agree with you. I, I think I probably see more ARDS than I used to, but it's not severe, right? It's technically ARDS, and we'll put them on ARDSnet kind of protocol, uh, and that's the extent of it. Uh, I think we see a lot less, other than, like you said, the isolated um, events. I remember uh, four five, six years ago, there was a big flu epidemic. Um, I think we had, uh, I think we had 12 people on ECMO at once, uh, in our place. And it was, I mean, it was ri- ridiculous. And like, we're having to like call around to other places and get machines cause we're out. Yeah. So, uh, other than that, yeah, it's not super common. All right, Brian. Well, we'll talk again soon. Yeah. All right. Yeah.